Israel is so much more than Krav Maga or falafel, and Jewish continuity has far greater meaning than watching Fiddler on the Roof with your kids. Welcome to the Thrive Study Abroadcast, the show where we will talk about modern Israel, Jewish values, and everything in between. I'm your host, Adi Isaacs, director of Thrive Study Abroad. For the last 15 years, I've seen how a semester or more in Israel will change a student forever. In this podcast, incredible students and people just like them share how Israel and Jewish values not only inspire them, but empower them to make an impact. Yala, Achi, and welcome to the show. Today I'm sitting down with Alex Oppenheimer, a good friend and a superstar in the Israeli VC world. He definitely didn't take the traditional path from working in Morgan Stanley to NEA to continuing his career trajectory in New York, but decided to come to Israel. Really excited to have a conversation today with Alex about his experiences. Hello, Alex. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate you coming here. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Alex, literally one of my best friends in the neighborhood. So excited that you live here, that you're still here, and can't wait to share a little bit of your story with, uh, with, our, with our, our followers and our listeners. Absolutely. So, Alex, start. Why don't you tell me where, where did you go to college? What did you study? Um, yeah, give a little background about yourself. Yeah, so oh, well, I'll take it back a step further, which is that I grew up in San Francisco Bay Area, um, Another California. Yeah, There's, we have a lot of California people in the neighborhood, but I'm the only Northern California person. Uh, <laughs> I met one other person in Jerusalem who's from San Francisco, but uh, and and then I, I went to Stanford, which I didn't think I was going to do. I thought I was going to go to the East Coast for college. Um, and then when it came down to it, Stanford was just awesome and studied mechanical engineering. I was not totally sure what I was going to study when I started. Um, there was a minute where I thought I might do econ. And then my dad was like, no, uh, <laughs> you're going to study engineering. Why? Why did your dad say that? My dad was an engineer and, and he knew I had like, I had the chops for it. And so he's like, no, you're going to, and honestly, I wasn't very good at econ. Like a lot of this stuff was very counterintuitive to me. I took a couple of classes. Um, and then I thought I was going to do material science, which was a little bit too much science and not quite enough engineering. And then I had to take a, a statics class where you just learn about static forces. And we like built a bridge and tested it until it broke. And I was like, wait, this is what we do in mechanical engineering. Like I'm down. And it was great. It was a very hands-on program. My junior year and senior year, I spent probably 10 or 15 hours a week in the machine shop on a mill on a lathe welding like you know working with metal so that doesn't seem like a trajectory to finance so how did you did you (laughs) always know that you wanted to go into into the finance world yeah pretty much i mean my dad's a cfo like so he's on the operational side but he took a company public in 1999 when i was like 11 uh 10 that was kind of always my thing i was always like Finance, like trading stocks, understanding businesses, and then also tinkering, you know, taking apart, putting stuff back together, go-peds, bikes, RC cars, whatever. You think that gave you a major leg up doing mechanical engineering as opposed to studying finance and econ? Um, so I actually almost went to the M&T program at Penn where you do both at the same time. And I ultimately decided not to do that to be honest, because I just didn't think it would be fun. Uh, I thought that like the social view of that program based on what people told me was like a little odd inside Penn. And then it's just a tremendous amount of work. And 
you know, years later, what I've realized is, you know, different professions have different levels of classroom education and practical education in order to become proficient. And so, you know, on, on one end of the spectrum, think about like an astrophysicist, right? It's 98% classroom education and 2% like something practical. <laughs> then if you have like a doctor, right? Doctor is a massive amount of like classroom education, but also a massive amount of practical education. And I always put finance on the other end of the spectrum where it's like 80 to 90% practical and only 10% educational. So, you know, I took three business classes when I was in college, I guess four. I mean, I don't think economics and business really are connected. It's like physics and mechanical engineering. Like, yeah, it's written in the same language, but it's not the same thing. Um, and, and then I remember I, you know, I went to Morgan Stanley after I graduated and there was a, you know, we had 150 analysts in the class. And I remember talking to a guy who had gone to the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley and we did seven weeks of training. And he was like, man, I wish I had studied something I was actually interested in because I just learned everything I need to know practically in seven weeks. Why did I spend years like doing all these classes taught by academics? I mean, some are taught by professionals, but, you know, it's always the question of like, where are the best people in that like domain? Where are they? Where do you find them? So you think it gave you really a well-round, hey, you enjoyed it and also gave you a much more well-rounded education. Yeah, and, and you know, frankly, there was a, like, so so I ended up studying mechanical engineering, and honestly, I think it was probably the easiest major for me. It was considered one of the harder majors at Stanford, but it was probably the easiest major for me because I could build stuff. I just have, like, a, I'm handy. I, I have, like, a knack for, for building things, and a lot of other people couldn't. And so when we all teamed up on stuff, I just built stuff, which was very easy for me, and then they were doing all the grinding, like, MATLAB coding and all that stuff, and I was like, no, oh, I built it, like, it works you that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, and then the, the, you know, the financial crisis crisis happened when I was in college. And so I actually was originally aimed more towards going the kind of sales and trading hedge fund PM type of route. And I was really disillusioned by the financial crisis. And I was still like, I was a sophomore. It wasn't like I was making any like, major decisions at that point, but I felt like value was destroyed in a very meaningful way, obviously by you know, people sitting in New York, like realizing that gas prices go up, not because of what's going on, where the, you know, the oil comes from, but because of people dressed like me sitting in Midtown. And that kind of bothered me. And I spent a summer doing an engineering internship and I was bored out of my mind. I found that studying engineering and doing engineering were very, very different because I'm pretty like ADHD. I like doing a lot of different things. And in college, you're taking three, four classes at a time. You're constantly learning. Everything's compounding on each other. And, and doing engineering, it's got to be perfect. And so you're doing the same, you're focused on generally the same thing. And I, frankly, I wasn't a good enough engineer to get like the really good jobs, you know, like the Apple, the Tesla, smart design, IDEO, like the really cool jobs, you know? And so maybe that would have been fun, but like, I liked prototyping, just making stuff like, yeah, it works great. And yeah. So, so I guess go bring us forward now is that what was your step? So when you graduated college, where did you start working? You mentioned Morgan Stanley, where did you start working? What were some companies that you worked with? Why was that interesting? Yeah. So ultimately decided to go into investment banking. I had interned at a small bank, which I didn't really enjoy. And I felt like there was a lot of kind of busy work that I couldn't, wasn't connected to. 
And then I went and interviewed at Morgan Stanley and they showed me what, you know, what's called the tombstone page, which is like their deal list. And I was like, I've heard of those companies. Like I'll stay up all night to work on a, you know, something for, for those, those are real names that I know. So what were some of those companies that you worked for? The ones that I worked with in my first year, the first account I got put on is a company called Micron, which you've probably used their products. You've probably never heard of them. It's, they make DRAM, which is a commodity. It's out of Idaho, massive semiconductor manufacturer. Working on that resulted in me getting pulled onto the Facebook like coverage team where we were like competing at the time, like competing to win the IPO business. And so, oh wow. Uh, so I joined Morgan Stanley in August of 2011 and I joined the Facebook team in late August 11 and then just grinded until like uh, May of 2012 when the deal priced. And, you know, it was wild. Like, it's, highly confidential. I always say like, I couldn't say anything, even saying I couldn't say anything about it would make it obvious what it is, made it obvious what it was. Right. Like it was the hottest deal at the time. Yeah. So, um, but you know, that's, that's what you sign up for. I remember when the staffer pulled me into our office and was like, Hey, the, you know, you're working with this guy on this other thing and he wants you on the Facebook deal. I was like, yeah, that's why I came here. What were were your hours like at the time? (laughs) So you were in New York City, right? No, I was in Menlo Park. Okay. So I was just outside Stanford, which which is a brutal place to do investment banking because I was telling these guys last night that, you know, you leave the office on a Thursday at 1 a.m. If you're in Manhattan, it's like, you know, it's, you know, it's alive. If you're in Menlo Park, it is like dead, dead, dead. Like, it's so depressing to leave the office at 1 a.m. on a Thursday <laughs> and, <laughs> and you have to just go to Safeway that's open 24 hours to get food and then you just go home and like everything's quiet because you're in the suburbs. Um, so your typical day was till 1 a.m.? No, no. That was like a good day. Uh, a good day? Yeah, that was a good day. Um, you know, it, it took us, it took us. What, uh, what was what was not a good day? So I'll tell you a, a, a story. So, um, so the other, by the way, the other thing I was working on right when I started was we, we sold success factors to SAP for like almost $4 billion dollars. So that was like a very intense sell side deal. So I was like, my first year I did multi-billion dollar deals in internet, software, and semis, M&A, debt, and equity. And I was kind of like, all right, like that's a good decade long banking career, you know, uh, <laughs> but it was brutal. So I remember there was a, like, I think it was December of 2011, maybe it was January, 2012. And yeah, it must've been December because we were still working on success factors and like, you know, Basically, I had one person who was on, like leading the success factors team walk through the bullpen where we sat and was like, great work, go get some rest. We got everything done. I got it sent off to the client. And then 10 feet behind him was like the guy I was working with on the Facebook deal. And he was like, okay, we got a lot of work to do. And I was just like, you know, just, just delirious, like totally <laughs> like surrendered. I still remember like, um, it was a Wednesday and I left Wednesday night at 7 a.m., which is Thursday. I went home. I always made a point of like, I'm going to go back to my apartment, which was like a 10 minute drive. I'm going to sleep for 45 minutes. I'm going to shower. and I'm going to come back. Because otherwise you gotta get jet lagged. Well, That's you know what, what also happened when you get really, really, really tired, you start reasoning with yourself like really silly things like I'm just going to take like a three second nap at the stop sign. And then the other people are like, oh, why don't you just take caffeine? I'm like, caffeine does not make you not tired. It makes you more alert. And when your body is physically tired and you try to load yourself up with caffeine, it, it just hurts. 
because you've got your brain wanting to do something, your body can't support it. It's miserable, which is why actually like I drank, I used to drink like Coke because it has sugar also. And that's really what your body needs is sugar. Very unhealthy. It sounds, it sounds like a very amazing, amazing lifestyle. So let's, let's fast forward. Let's, let's fast forward a little bit. But then I had started going back to my college rabbi's house for Shabbat dinners. And I was like, ah, you know what? Even if I'm here all Thursday night, Friday at 7 p.m., I'm going to Rabbi Kamen's house and I'm leaving this place. And it just made demarcations on the week, which was like, had a mass. You know, I always say it's just like those Shabbat dinners at Rabbi Kamen's house just got me through banking. Amazing. Like, so that's perfect. Let, let's, let's, I, I would love to hear fast forward now, actually, is that you came to Israel at some point in time. Why? It's a, this could be a, for sure a 10 podcasts long of why you yeah. came to Israel and your whole, and your whole journey. But just if you give very, very, very brief notes is that when did you come to Israel? Why did, why did you come to Israel and what did you do for the first couple of uh, years you were here? So I'll give you kind of the f- whole journey. So the first time I came to Israel was on birthright in summer of 2009. I was, I was after my sophomore year. I'd never been to Israel. Kind of immediately felt like an interesting connection and I had a lot of like, this is weird. I've never seen anything like this. I traveled a lot of places with my family, but it's like there's something weird going on here. I had a very awesome like birthright trip and crew and everything. And then I came back to Israel in the summer of 2012, but first between my first and second year of banking and did the more Israel trip, which was great. I was physically, emotionally, and mentally decimated, but it was a great trip. And then um, three years later, I had, so after Morgan Stanley, I joined NEA, New Enterprise Associates, moved to the East Coast, was living in Washington, D.C., traveling a ton, having a great time, working with good people, learning a ton, not working insane hours, Um, and after two years there, they were like, we want you to stay. I was like, great. And I was like, how about, um, six months in yeshiva and then I'll come back. Cause they were like, maybe go to business school. And I was like, no, but they're like, what's yeshiva? So I explained it to them and they're at least what I thought. And they were like, actually, you know, that sounds really good. And you know, the short of it is that like, I was getting nervous and my boss was like, no, you have to go to yeshiva, which was very, what did you explain to them again for our listeners that don't necessarily know what yeshiva is? What, what, what did you explain to your, uh, Bosses. So the main points that they connected to were that one, I would just have time away from work, which like out of the hustle, which was like four years of just grinding, different kinds of grinding. And they, what they really saw as an opportunity, which, you know, they thought was important for me was just to work on myself, to have time for introspection, to be able to develop as an adult and as a person, rather than like what I was at that point was just kind of like, I don't know what to call it. Like, uh, I was just like a machine, right? I was being trained as a machine and I'm, I'm grateful that I got that training because it built instincts in me, which make me a, I think a pretty proficient financial professional to this day. But the other stuff was not developing, frankly, you know, the, the softer things, the more, you know, navigating the politics of a firm and like these sort of like things, which I was missing because I was just a machine and they saw the opportunity there for me to, to get that in actually a very efficient way. That, that was their view on it. They were like, you can go in six months. Like you'd probably get a lot of this stuff in business school, but that's like two years and like hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're just going to go for six months. Like that's great. And, and, then I, and then I went back to my job. I, I moved from living in like more downtown DC to move to living in Silver Spring. And my office was in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And it was great. Like I went back. It was great. I had a crazy experience. Like my, the, the main guy that I worked for pulled me aside after like a month 
you know, a month after getting back from yeshiva. And he was like, I don't know what you did over there, but whatever it was, I want to learn about it because it worked. Like, he's like, you got exactly out of this experience what I wanted you to get out of the experience. And then, like, the next week, I'm, like, sitting at lunch, like, showing him what a Dafa Gamara looks like and, you know, <laughs> talking to him about, our, like, our daily schedule and giving him, like, the quick vort from Rabbi Dessler on give and take and these sort of things. And he was an extremely intellectually honest person. He just didn't, he didn't have issues. Like, he was able to kind of see the truth in anything. And, and then... Uh, so yeah, so then how did you end up coming back to Israel? <laughs> Why did you come back to Israel? So... So I'd met a few people who were alum, alumni of my yeshiva who had been to the yeshiva in like the late 80s, mid 90s. And then they had moved their families to Israel, you know, 15 years later, 10 years later. And I was like, yeah, so that's like, that's the derech. Like that's, that's what you do. That's the ideal. And at the same time, I had gotten to know Michael Eisenberg just from going to his house for Shabbos meals while I was in yeshiva. And I was like, yeah, I want to live in Israel one day. And all these guys had been working who's, in... Just for our listeners, who, who's Michael Eisenberg, just in a nutshell? Michael Eisenberg's from the Upper West Side. He moved to Israel in the early 90s, and he's a very successful venture capitalist who runs a fund called Aleph. So he was like a mentor of yours? Yeah. And I sat with him. I came back to Israel that, that summer that I was back in D.C. for a wedding, just for a week. And that was my first time. Like, I rented a car. I was driving around, did a couple of meetings, like... I'd always wanted to do business in Israel. I'd never been able to do it with my with my work. And I sat with Michael for the first time, not at his Shabbos table. And I was like, yeah, I want to live in Israel. And he was like, then live in Israel, right? Like <laughs> all of a sudden he just in like five words just broke like the whole kind of, yeah, I think this happens a lot in life. Like you have an assumption of the way things work. And then it's just like, no, if you want to move to Israel, get on an airplane. He was like, you're 27, you're single. You have five years of experience. You work in venture. Like you're not like a doctor or a lawyer where it doesn't quite transfer and you have to do all these things. Like it's like just just come and you'll figure it out. And I did. And so how and did how did it transfer? What? So so I ended up getting I, I did something which I tell people generally not to do, which is like come here with a job, right? You know, if you want to move from New York to San Francisco, then you fly to San Francisco, you apply for jobs, you interview, and then and then you get an offer and you come in five months and you find a place to live and great. That's not how Israel works. Like when you come to Israel, and again, I'm saying this as someone who didn't do this, but I was at a, a level where I wasn't able to like wrap my arms around this, but come to Israel, you got to show up. Like people here don't, everyone, every Jew is like, yeah, I would love to live in Israel. Yeah. But until you're like boots on the ground and like, you know, maybe passport in hand, like it's not, it's not a requirement, but you know, people aren't really going to take you seriously. I had to the point that I had a friend that I like, he met these people twice and they offered him a job in Israel. And I was like, that's very weird. Like I wouldn't work with those people. He's like, why not? I was like, cause if they don't want to get to know you better and they don't want to see that you're committed. Then they're not committed to you. And he was like, Oh yeah, that's a great point. And so, he, so, he, so ultimately so, what did he do? So, so I took a job at a corporate VC fund that I, I an introduction I got through Michael, uh, and, and moved here in August of 2016. And and I was, my first year, I was, um, had an apartment in Harnof. I was still spending some time in the yeshiva. And then I had an apartment in Tel Aviv. And I would like, it was pre-trained. So I'd be like driving, but I would always be able to drive when there wasn't traffic. So, it was, but it was like a crazy lifestyle. My first year in Israel was not easy. Um, you know, the, the thought of leaving actually, you know, came up seriously a couple times. And then I realized that like the job I had, which, you know, really helped you know build the foundations of my network in Israel 
was just like not what I needed at that point. And so I decided to leave the job, which was a very weird thing for me to do coming through this like hardcore prep school, Stanford, Morgan Stanley, NEA path. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know, I had figured out how to like finagle the six months in yeshiva and take, you know, leave of absence when I was 26 and sabbatical, whatever. And now it's like, no, you got to just put both feet in. And, and so I just decided to leave the job with no plan, which was like, I felt like in part, I also broke through like multi-generational, like Holocaust trauma and insecurities that come with it. Being like, you know what? I'll be fine. Right. Like, like I just, just kind of, I remember when I was coming to, she was worried, Oh, what's, what's the impact on my career and all these things. And like sitting with Tom Steinberg, who's a mentor of mine and him kind of like facetiously making fun of me being like, well, you know, yeah, it's, I get it. You didn't go to a very good school. Like, you, you know, you, you didn't go to Yale. He went to Yale. Right. And like, you didn't work at such a great investment bank. You know, you worked at where you he went, you know, he worked at Goldman Sachs and like, you know, and then like, he's like, he's like, chill out. Right. Like you'll be fine. Like, and, and now that I, I yeah, realize, so are, are, are you fine now? You, now you start, you started <laughs> your own place now. So are you fine? Yeah. Thank God. Well, what are you doing but, at your own place now? So, so, um, after I got, so when I left that job, I went back to Yeshiva and I actually very organically, just people started asking for my help. When I was at NEA, I spent a lot of time with my portfolio companies, very hands-on operationally. And it turns out that like a lot of companies want help with that. And so friends who are founders, friends who are investors started saying, oh, can you help my company? I was like, sure. So I started taking the afternoons off of Yeshiva and working with companies and working with some great companies like Monday.com and Demisto and Fabric and Phantom Auto and Avocado and, and Rossum and Causal and like all these other companies started doing some angel investing. And it was wild because I went from having these fancy business cards to just being Alex Oppenheimer at gmail.com. And that was it. And it was just, it was actually the first time I felt like genuine confidence. Like it, it was not like a posturing positioning. Here's my resume. It was just like, people just wanted to talk to me and, and they wanted to hear what I had to say about their metrics and their numbers and their models and stuff like that. And very like, encouraging and confidence building. And, um, and then that ultimately after doing that, I got married and then doing that for another year and realized, okay, I need to actually like be a, to build a business. And I was like, I always say like, I had to come to Israel to become an entrepreneur, even though I'm from Silicon Valley. And, uh, so that's, that's what I'm doing now is. Yeah. So what, tell me a little bit about what you're doing now and how you started it. And, uh, so I started by doing angel investing and then I realized that I had, more allocation in deals and not enough money to fill it and more deals coming in. And so effectively what an investor is, is kind of a, a, a marketplace, right? And where I'm finding limited partners to allocate capital to me. And then I'm allocating that capital to startups. And obviously it's not quite that simple. There's a lot of nuanced and long time skills and network and, you know, theses that come into the, into play. But, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, at some point I looked in the mirror in late 2019 and was like, I'm an investor. Like, and, and I'd never raised money. I'd done a lot of deals. I'd worked with a lot of companies, but I had good deal flow. But I was like, I'm an investor. And like, if I'm going to be, if I, you know, I looked myself in the mirror, I'm an investor and an investor needs a fund. And I didn't want to do fundraising. I didn't feel like I have any advantage there. I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta figure this out. I gotta grind it out. And so he jumped in. So I jumped in and started, you know, when I say I started trick-or-treating for capital, you know, <laughs> like $50,000 at a time asking people like, hey, you want to, you know, thank God people wanted to bet on me. They, you know, I, I my first fund, um, you know, was 
not a very big fund. And I was like, you know, I just want to scale up my angel investing a little bit and kind of very much a startup journey. I take a lot of the the cues that we get from investing in early stage companies of where they go through what I, what I call the three kind of main stages are consistency, repeatability, and then scalability. And so now I'm a, I'm a CEO and that's a big part of my job. And I've got to, you know, I was up until one in the morning last night talking to one of my partners who, you know, we're not equal partners. Like it's, everything's my responsibility. And he's a, he's a successful CTO. He's more like working with me, like coming up the curve on the investing side but he gives me great advice on like managing people. You know, he's hired dozens and dozens of people and built an organization and manages managers. And he's giving me fantastic advice about like how to be a CEO. You know, I have, I have five jobs that I have to do. And like one of them is being a CEO. One of them is dealing with LPs. One of them is, you know, bringing in deal flow. One of them is picking the companies to invest in and then investing in them. And then the last is working with those companies, which is really my. I'm smiling because I feel like I do all that stuff also. And yeah. you know, my staff here is, yep. is definitely, definitely laughing at that. Just because you have such a vast experience, Alex, in dealing with global companies, um, working with tons of people, what, what do you find the differences between working in Israel uh, and working in, in the United States? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've spent time working with people in San Francisco, L.A., D.C., Boston, New York, a little bit of Chicago, a little bit of Atlanta, some Colorado, some Seattle. And uh, so, it, you know, it's hard to generalize the whole U.S., but uh, there are certain main tendencies that I've seen come out pretty clearly. And I think that in general, the relationship that people in Israel have with their job and the identity they associate with it is significantly healthier than what I see in the U.S. What do you mean by that? The way people, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, someone had moved to the neighborhood and they came to Shul and and they were like, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm a software engineer. And I was like, he said that to like two people. He's introducing himself. And I was like, dude, we don't say that here. Like I, I've known some of these people for like three, four years. I have no idea what they do. Why is that a value? You know, because it, it's a you have what you do for work and then you have who you are. And I think that in a lot of the kind of, we'll call it, I hate to use this term, but like Western culture, those two things have been kind of melded together because a lot of the other sources of identity have been like pushed down. Um, And so it's just, here's who I am and here's what I do and that's who I am. And now again, I'm not one of these people who's like, no, I don't want to hear about what you do. The truth is that what you spend eight hours a day or more doing is a big part of your identity. But the more other stuff you have, even if you're not spending a proportional amount of time on it, is much more important. And that filters through the entire, you know, the entire workforce and society, you know, secular, religious, in Israel, whatever. I think, I, I'm not sure that the, you know, I think that the people who've only worked here and maybe they work in Tel Aviv and they're secular, they go to America and they go like, these people are crazy, you know? In, 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 what, in what way? In Israel, people still, it's like, yeah, I'm going to leave the office at two o'clock. I'm going to go pick up my kids at gone. I'm going to take them home. You know, I'm going to get them settled and then I'm going to go back to work. And people are still working 14, 15, 16 hours a day, but the way that they prioritize it, like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, my friend pointed this out. He was living on the Upper East Side and he was like, when I drop my kids off at gone in Tel Aviv, like gone is childcare. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. It's a, uh, it's daycare, preschool, whatever. And he's like, it's mostly dads. You know, he's like, if I drop my kids off at Gan in the Upper East Side, I'd be the only dad. 
And so there's just, there's, there's actually, even though it's kind of, oh, it's this more Middle Eastern style culture that you would think is more kind of standard. It's actually just deeper. I mean, it's not, that, it's not that people here work less. You're saying it's just, just they prioritize different aspects of their lives as well. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very different cadence and it's, it's pretty awesome. Like it's, you know, again, people go to the offices and they work all day. Don't get me wrong. And they commute and they do their thing. But just the what I've observed is the overall relationship with work is is much healthier and how that's balanced with with family and with hobbies and other things. You know, like there I was talking to a guy who, you know, is an Israeli guy. He works at a VC fund. He's a he went to Stanford GSB. He's like kind of all those things. And first time meeting him and he's talking about kite surfing. And yeah, I mean, I'm not saying people in America don't talk about hobbies. And like the joke now is that like, this is for the last 10 years is that, you know, cycling is the new golf. You know, you'd ask a, my friend is like, he's a, became a competitive cyclist. He's a VC, but, you know, he'd ask a founder to like go on a ride with him on the weekend, you know, not you know, go play 18 holes. Um, but yeah, I just, I just feel like it's, it's much healthier. The identity is driven by so many other things. You, know, you meet someone, they say, this is, this is where I'm from. This is where I learned either in school or in yeshiva or both. And this is where I live now. And I have, you know, my wife's from this place and I, my kids are in school there. And, oh, and by the way, like I do this, that, and the other thing. It's like, I could take up some extra time during meetings as well, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I always actually, I kind of, it's kind of a joke, but I always do this where I, when I meet people in person, like I'll travel to the U.S. and I'll meet people in person for the first time that I've had two or three Zoom calls with already. And like I make a point of not talking to them about work. Like we can deal with that stuff on Zoom. Let's build a relationship. You know, let's let's get to know each other more. Like we're in person. Like let's use that, not pull out the computer and walk through a you know PowerPoint slide. Like it's better to do that on Zoom any anyway with screen sharing. So let's walk through the model. We don't need to sit in the same room for that. You know, I just traveled six thousand miles. Like let's just hang out. <laughs> Some, something that is definitely very important. I know we've had these discussions. Something that's very important to you is the concept of, of charity. We both met people that believe that people that give are philanthropists. You know, once you've made your um, millions or, or billions, billions of dollars, you know, what, what's your take on charity and how, how have you implemented it in your life? Um, so yeah, it's interesting because I did not grow up in a household that gave a lot of charity. And I think there's, there's always a strong desire to not give and to find an excuse to not give. Because, oh, is this charity really efficient? Am I really totally aligned with the goals of what they're doing? Right? There's a lot of questions people ask and excuses people make to not. But you're give. already like steps ahead. That's somebody that's actually thinking. But most people don't really yeah, think about and, that. And so what I realized going back to like 2014 when I really started making like tzedakah and Meister like part of my life. Why, why did you? Why did you? It's um, why did I? Um, frankly, I found it very empowering. Like... You know, I can, and money's fungible, right? But I can, I can give a hundred dollars to this organization, and and the person that sent me the organization is like, wow, thank you for supporting it. It means a lot to me, and I can support that organization. And again, people say, oh, but maybe only thirty cents on the dollar is going to whatever. And like, okay, so who cares, right? That's their problem. You gave your hundred dollars. You get that feeling, and that's a good feeling, and something wrong with it, and. They're going to do what they're going to do and you're going to have a positive impact and the, the connection between those two things is, is generally is, is good. So I felt like there was a muscle and I've now kind of consolidated my my tzedakah strategy strategy after almost 10 years of, you know, figuring out how to give and in, in what instances and to what sort of organizations. 
And, you know, I was telling someone an example. I have a very close friend. He sent me an organization. The page was all in Hebrew. I didn't really like spend the time to figure out what was going on. But I don't care because this person had his own, like, you know, he's it's his team and he's responsible for a certain quota. If he cares enough about his organization to do that, I'm just going to give money. Like, I think it's the same thing with investing. And some, if somebody refers you to somebody that's very, you know, prestigious individual and they believe in it so you'll believe in it as well yeah and it's way better than investing because why because it's just a one-way thing like once it's done it's done the investment's made and it's like to infinity right now why why do you believe it's a to infinity um there is a you know i think that there's a strong there's a balance that's meant to be struck and i don't know maybe call it the gospel of wealth right you know carnegie's gospel of wealth that People who have more are responsible for giving to others who don't have. And I think that it's it's not just this like, oh, you've got to give the homeless person money. No, it's not just like this, oh, we have to create equity and like force balance everything. There are people who have less in other ways. Frankly, a lot of the donations that I give are to institutions of Torah learning, which are, you know, run by people and filled with people who are fine on all the you know, on all the bottom levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And now we're being able to achieve the higher levels. And I think, frankly, we live in a an era of plenty that the world has never seen before. And so it's pretty amazing that that's the sort of stuff that we get to, to get to give money to. I think somebody, somebody that has never experienced giving before, their family don't, don't do it, and they come into a good, decent job. Why, how would you convince them the importance and what would you tell them to start doing? It's like exercise. Again, I really believe it's like building a muscle, right? Someone tells you, oh yeah, jogging is great. It's great for you. You'll feel great, right? You'll get benefits 50 years from now when you don't have a heart attack. You know, like all these things and you say, okay, that sounds nice. But until you start doing it, you really can't appreciate what the feeling is of being able to just to just give and, and create that dynamic in yourself where you get you just get better at it and and then you get the feeling and you also understand that the impact you're having you know there, there's this the story about the king who confiscates everything that the guy has and says you lied to me about what you have you know he said you said you have a million dollars but i just came into your house and saw your safe and you have a hundred million dollars he says well you know let's say ten million dollars he says well you know dear king i never had that $9 million because you took it. It was never mine, right? What, what we have in this, in this physical world and our ability to, you know, allocate capital and buy things and be involved in, in the material world is inherently ephemeral. When we give money to tzedakah, it's, it's eternal. And again, because it's, it's really a one-way street and then it goes straight to infinity, right? Like, I'm doing my part. I have a mitzvah to do. I can connect to that how I choose to and how it's meant to be connected to whether I really feel it on the front end or not. And that's really what I own. What I've given away is the only stuff I really have because our physical everything can be taken away in a minute. Unfortunately, we've seen that happen with people. So so for somebody that right now, they earn their first big paycheck or whatever the paycheck is, and they, um, how would you tell them what they, what should, what advice would you give them in terms of giving charity, how to do it, how to choose a place, how much to give, you know, what, what's the balance that you believe that you would instruct somebody? So in the, in the effort of muscle building, um, and going back to the, the 
Rambam's view on it is that it's better to give one dollar to a hundred people than a hundred dollars to one person. Why? So because you build the muscle of just getting to say yes, right? You just you learn how to say yes, and obviously you have to do your allocations properly. Again, when you're young and you get your paychecks, it's very simple calculations of like, all right, here's how much I want to save, here's how much I can afford to give. If you can give 10% post-tax, like, fantastic. I started keeping spreadsheets of every donation I make, which now at the end of the year, I'm like, wow, I, I gave away a lot of money. That's pretty cool. You know, like, yeah, $100 at a time or $250, $360, whatever, and it adds up. And you go, wow, I touched all these organizations. And then I also track, like, who introduced me to the organization. And it's it's it becomes like, a again, you have like a body of work that you can point to and say, wow, I contributed to that, I contributed to this. And so I kind of, I, I put things into three different categories. So the first category is, like I mentioned earlier, stuff that my friends say, hey, I'm helping raise money for this organization or this organization has had an impact on my life. And I'm like, great. And I have like a nominal amount that I give. And and then the, the second category of organizations is is organizations that my friends aren't just like involved in or been the beneficiary of, but they run. And they spend their time running these organizations. And even if I'm not connected to exactly what it is, right? It's a, a something that, I, again, it doesn't have personal connection to my life, but my friend is running it and I trust them and I know them and they're devoting their, their time and their life's work to this organization. I give meaningfully more. And then I have the organizations that have impacted me directly that I've been the beneficiary of that in some ways I feel like I'm kind of just paying back and, and paying forward, right? Everyone benefits. It's not a zero something where you're really paying it back. It's someone else, someone else's generosity benefited me when I was younger to be part of it. And, and now my generosity can benefit the next person. It's again, it's like an infinite sum. And then, and then you've got kind of parallel to that, the idea of you, you know, you need to support yourself. You need to support your family. You need to support your community, your neighborhood, your, your, you know, your broader areas and out from there. And so, you know, if there's something that comes up locally, then I feel it's important to, to give to that as well in, in a meaningful way because you have to support your, you know, your family first. And it extends You keep on saying there. need to, have to. Why, why is that the case? <laughs> why is that the case? Um, I think that when you're, when you're given a little bit of extra, again, be responsible, save money, build savings, take care of yourself first. But when you see, all right, I, I do have what I need and I can benefit somebody else who has less, then I should. And by the way, here's the thing that I've had to explain to my dad. He's like, I don't understand why these people keep needing money for this. And he's like, because they don't have a strong financial education like you did. You know, like <laughs> they are always going to need money and that's just part of it. And look, if you can help them need less money and get out of whatever hole they're in, that's fantastic. But right now, this is what they need and you give it to them. And that's why you need to, because that opportunity was presented to me when it was presented to me. And, and I'm, you know, it's like, I'm lucky to have that opportunity and, and that's my benefit that I can then share and making you know making making a major difference one check at a time to these places just just to end going back to something we discussed previously is if somebody if somebody if somebody is um now looking at a career they worked one or two years in america and um no what would you suggest uh somebody around 25 years old some of our alumni would you suggest coming to israel um why why not just a short one one minute final ads final words 
best Jewish answer ever. It depends. Um, I think for some people, it's the um, the ability to really like work on yourself and figure yourself out and all those little things that you know are slight problems get really exacerbated in Israel. And if you're ready for that and you think you can do it and there's a career path that makes sense, then then give it a shot. I think when you're younger, you just have less inertia. You have less career inertia, less family inertia. You know, like, give it a shot. Like, the, you know, and frankly, there's more and more people moving here every day that are like what I would consider super legit, right? They're finishing Harvard Business School and they're like, I'm only interviewing for jobs in Israel. Like, All right, that wasn't the case 20 years ago. You know, there weren't people like that. Maybe a couple special people, but now it's like becoming more of a trend. And it's, it's easier to make money here, easier to, you know, do work with people in the U.S. than it's ever been before. There's real big companies that there's stuff to learn from. Uh, there's global companies that have offices here. So if you can make it happen, that's great. Now, is your salary number going to be as big headline number as, as it is in America? No. And I'll tell you one small but big difference, which is when people talk about salaries in America, they talk about them dollars per year. It's $100,000 a year. It's $500,000 a year. That's how much money you're making. In Israel, it's monthly and it's in shekels. And I think there's something really deep going on there, which goes back to the identity with your job. Your job is a job. And I think it's important to have that perspective. You, you, you work at a job to get Parnassah to support yourself so you can live. Now, if you're lucky, you also get to learn. You get to work with great people. You get to work on something meaningful and interesting and challenging and exciting. And, and that's all great, but that's all icing on the cake. And again, this idea of I make this much money per month, that's most people run on a monthly budget. They pay rent monthly. They pay their, their for their car monthly. They pay their credit card bills monthly. It's very, very just practical. This is how much money I have coming in. This is how much money I have going out every month. In America, the annual salary figure is, is just... A, a vanity thing, right? It's like, great, you make a million dollars a year and you spend, you know, post-tax, you spend 95% of that. You know, your savings rate is almost nothing. <laughs> so it's like, okay, great, you feel good about making this much money, but now you're you, net for net. Yeah, we'll get to, you, give the, you live this enjoyable life. Who told you you really need all that stuff and that country club and that car and that thing? Like, you don't. And so, it's it, again, it goes back to this question of identity. Like, oh, I make this much money. I work for this firm. Sounds like uh, you're perfect for, for, the, for the Israeli society. You've benefited a lot. And really, thank you so much for uh, taking the time, Alex. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please help us reach more people by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For more content like this, visit our website at thrivestudyabroad.org.